This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. So today I'm talking to Tim Harris. Tim Harris is the best-selling author of several Laugh Out Loud series for kids. The more recent ones would be Toffle Towers, but he first burst onto the scene with Exploding Endings, which is short stories, and Mr. Bam Buckles Remarkables, of which I think there are three books. Is that correct, Tim? Uh, four. 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 I'm sorry, there's four. So, Tim, thanks for joining us. How are you, mate? I'm pretty good today. Uh, well, it's almost like the stomach's just starting to gurgle for some lunch, James. So I'm starting to imagine uh, chicken sandwiches. Ah, well, we're all in lockdown at the moment, and I guess the I know that you're a, a mad cricket nut like me. Um, I could just edit that out to say you're a mad nut, but you're a mad cricket nut. Um, pity it's not cricket season, isn't it? Well, it's, is it any season at the moment? It's, it's not just, any. It's the season. Yeah, well, as a proud of, as a proud yeah. manly supporter, you would um, you'd be pretty sad at the moment, right? Now, for those listening, there's a twinkle in James's eye across the Zoom session. There, um, I'm actually wearing a Parramatta Eels shirt, which I think I actually chose it for two reasons. First of all, this is Westwards, and so I know that there might be a few Parra fans. Ah, and secondly, nice my tie-in. team finished above James's team. <laughs> finished after two rounds. <laughs> yeah, we're winless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you win both your games? Minor premiers. Minor premiers. There you go. That's the only way they're ever going to get there. So moving on. Um, <laughs> today we're talking about plot. Um, now, look, I'm going to come out here and say this. I'm terrible at plot. I mean, I've written lots of books and you, you could argue that the plots in those books are okay. But that's the bit that I really struggle with because I'm not a planning kind of writer. I'm a, um, I'm a writer who takes an idea and then runs with it and waits to see what transpires. So I'm actually really, really interested to hear what you have to say, Tim, because I know you're a planning writer and you're all about the plot. Well, not, you're not all about the plot. You're a good character writer and a good descriptive writer as well. But I'm really keen to hear how you do this because I'd, I'd, I'd love to be able to do this better myself. So um, where do you start? How do you, how, do you, how do you get that plot thing off the line? So I'd like to start with a concept before plot is mapped out. And a concept can be a really big idea uh, it can be a really small idea as well. Um, and I might use an actual example of a, of a concept um, before I tell you about how then I mapped it out with a plot. Um, so here's the concept, and this is based on a true story, something that happened to me in real life. Uh, I was walking back from the shops one day and I think I had some, some bread or some milk in my hand. It was a really simple little errand. And I was about halfway um, returned to home looking straight ahead down the footpath and a little voice called out to me um, and it was a real human voice and the voice said, excuse me, do you want to buy this for five bucks? And I turned to my left to the house that I just walked past and there was a kid probably about 10 years old sitting on a chair and he was holding up a, a piece of art that he had drawn which was actually an iPhone screenshot. So he had drawn a screenshot of all the icons on an iPhone um, and he's selling it for five bucks. Um, in the end, I, I, I said no and I went home, but actually I felt guilty and I walked back and bought it because it had planted a concept. It was the concept of 
this kid wants to make money and it was a money-making concept. I wonder if I can turn this into a story. Um, so how did the plot come about? Well, there was the concept planted, someone wants to make money. Then the job was to give this story a beginning, give it a middle and give it an end. And so that's when the planning started to happen. All right. So you took the concept, you turned it into a plot. Have you got any other examples from your own work that you can give us? So, for example, let me let me try and work this out. Um, if you're talking about Toffle Towers, you're talking about – so the concept is a kid with the peculiar name of Chegwin for some reason um, inherits or is, is made the manager of a ramshackle hotel. Is that that's the concept? Yeah, that's right, and that's that's a really great question, James, because it we now swing to the other extreme. So the first example was the most simple concept I could think of um, in my book so far, and that was about a three thousand word short story about the boy who wanted to make a whole lot of money um, selling screenshots. But when we moved to Toffle Towers, which is a, a whole um, story, it's um, I think about twenty eight thousand words, so a lot longer than the three thousand words. This concept um, had had a bit more depth to it, and the concept was: ten year old boy inherits hotel, and ten year old boy is a daydreamer, and ten year old daydreaming boy has to save this hotel from ruin. So right. the concept was a, it was a lot richer, and so therefore the planning um, took on a whole different approach in terms of what do I need to map out for this. So obviously, if you're going to work this way, planning is important. I mean, I, as I said at the beginning, I, I struggle with the planning side of things. It's not until I've got a few ideas bouncing around that I start to work that out. But you, do, you like to do that stuff right near the beginning. I do, yeah. Um, I'll try and dig out, and I'll, I'm not sure if we can link to it, but I'll try and dig out a little 15-second video. It's a time-lapse video of the mapping out of one of my Mr. Van Buckle books and it was all very predetermined uh, what was going to happen when. So it was extremely, uh, extremely planned plotting. What, what's your, um, I mean, I, I think that you're right. It's important. Um, how do you play with the idea of foreshadowing when you're, when you're doing plotting? I got in trouble from my editor from this for actually having too much of it. Uh, and one of the things uh, that I really loved about um, Paul Jennings' short stories is he would often foreshadow at the end of a chapter to, to keep the reader reading. Like, I want to find out what happens in the next chapter. So could we, we'd better clarify for anyone who's at this point going, I don't know what they're, what they're talking about, which won't be many people, but there might be a couple. What's what's foreshadowing? Yeah, so foreshadowing is when the the writer deliberately gives a little clue to the reader about something that might be coming up. Um, it might be very subtle. Um, it might hint, it might just hint that, I'll give you an example, uh, perhaps the end of a chapter, a character is looking out the window um, and the postman arrives and is carrying a letter and then the chapter ends where we know that, oh, that maybe the, the, the character needs to go and get that letter. But it also could be pretty major. For example, and I'll quote one of my own stories, um, I just did a reading for, in fact, it's the $5 story. I just did some readings on Facebook. And one of the chapters says, it ends with this line. It says, um, I hadn't made much money selling screenshots that day, but little did I know how much money I was about to make the next day. And so then the reader thinks, oh, well, something big's about to happen. I, you know, I need to keep reading. Um, so foreshadowing tells the reader that something is going to happen, but it doesn't exactly specify 
The other, the other really good example of foreshadowing that I like to use is the uh, third Toy Story movie as the toys are sliding down the trash compactor and they're about to get incinerated and, and crushed. And you, you think, I, I can't see a way out for them. And then, the thing, of course, the thing that saves them is the little aliens from, and the claw who we met in the first movie, which was made 10 years earlier. So if, at the time when we saw that sort of, saw those little alien guys, we were like, oh, they're cute. But we didn't ever for yeah. a moment think that we we're going to rely on them 10 years later to actually save the whole, the whole show. Yeah, that's a really good example, and it's a very it's a very subtle example because the foreshadowing is a, just a little clue. Um, Ten years earlier, as you said, which ends up coming back to help the story. Um, and I, I wonder, James, do you reckon that that was deliberate foreshadowing, or do you think that was um, a just a handy coincidence? I don't know. I, I, I the, what I always say to, to people when I'm talking about foreshadowing is that this is an opportunity, a really simple opportunity you have to um, make yourself look like a genius. But <laughs> but, but what it requires is a second draft often, or if you're planning the way you yeah. do, maybe not. But yeah, you you can go make your reader go, oh my gosh, I had no idea that's what that was about. Oh, that's brilliant. But um, you don't have to be a genius to do it. It's just a matter of going back and, and finding that little thing that's going to. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's right. And if it doesn't end up being foreshadowing, um, it could, depending on the genre of writing, it could end up being a red herring as well. A red well. herring. So, yeah, so what's a red herring? So a red herring is it's a little tool that a writer might use to plant a false seed with the reader. For example, especially um, murder mysteries might love to use red herrings and the reader might think, oh, you know, Mr. Jones here was looking very suspicious, so he must have been the one who committed the crime. Um, but perhaps Mr. Jones was frowning for something else. So a red herring is going to give the reader some options. You know, who who could it have been? Was it Mr. Jones? Was it someone else? And of course, with a with a good murder mystery, for example, like an Agatha Christie or something like that, you there's if you have seven major characters and you have seven, you have six red herrings in the real one, don't you? Because the fun of reading a story like that is that you're trying to work out who it is with the limited clues you've been given, but they've all got to be legitimate clues, don't they? You can't, you can't sort of throw out something that isn't real, right? Yeah, that's right. They, they should be. Otherwise, the risk is the story becomes confusing and there are too many extra things going on, which, and when it comes to plot, the writer's goal is to really steer the reader on along that main plot. Um, and, yeah, too many red herrings can certainly cause confusion or too much foreshadowing as well can then be too predictive. So we have to be careful to um, find the balance. Nice. So characters, plot, complication, setting, emotional engagement, uh, structure, these are all elements of writing that are equally important, I suppose. But they tie together in a way. So how do your characters and your plot tie together? I know you've got something to say about this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I really enjoyed listening to the interview you did with, with Deb Bella. And I actually have a fairly similar process to Deb um, in that the, the main character should want something. And so for Toffel Towers, Chegwin wants to save the hotel um, so he can the workers keep their jobs. And so that helps the plot because Chegwin wants something he actually pushes the story forward. If he didn't want to save the hotel, then we, we don't have a story. It's as simple as that. Um, but does that, really but does that mean he can just walk in and say, I want to save the hotel, and the bank goes, oh, okay, that's fine then? Wouldn't be much of a story, would it? It wouldn't, right. So <laughs> I guess what I'm yeah. saying is they've got to want something, but you've got to make them work a bit for it, don't you? 
Yeah, that's right. So they should be working for it. Um, and there's a really funny example. I remember laughing quite hard the first time I, I heard this joke because someone said to me, um, Lord of the Rings, you know, massive thick book. There's three movies goes for nine hours. And, and a friend said to me, do you reckon Lord of the Rings would go for nine hours if Frodo didn't want the ring? <laughs> I thought, actually, no. Yeah, no. so the character <laughs> wanting something. Yeah. Um, the character should be working hard. You're, you're right. And because the character should be wanting something. And really, a story is zeroing in on a particular character in a particular stage of their life. And if they don't want something, then there's not much of an interesting plot for the reader. And I guess it's, it's relative to who the character is. I mean, the, the kid in year four isn't going to be interested in what the stock market's doing. He's much more interested in the fact that he forgot to bring his lunch money to work or he forgot to do his homework or whatever, whereas the, the, the guy in the um, stock exchange doesn't really care too much about his sandwiches. He's just going to pick up something else, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's where young writers can have a lot of fun because you might be familiar with particular, you, you know, your own worlds. You, your world might be your cricket team. You know, your world might be your after-school band or dance group or whatever it is and you can use that to help tell a story because if you're familiar with the world then it's much easier to identify with a character um, and place that character and give them something to want and then suddenly you've got a plot to work with. So a term that people throw around a lot when they're talking about plot is subplot. Can you put that in terms that people can really understand what's a subplot and how do we do that? Yeah, so we might start with, so the main plot is the the main story. And as the word says, main being the major, it's really the essence of the whole story or the whole narrative. But then when we get to a subplot, suddenly we might skip off to the side or skip off underneath with just a little second storyline. Um, so in Toffle Towers, I've, I've said that the main plot is for Chegwin to revive the whole the hotel. The whole series revolves around that main plot. But a little subplot is that somebody keeps stealing food from the kitchen. And now this the whole story, otherwise I would have called the, the story Kitchen Towers if it was about the kitchen, but no, it's Toffle Towers about the hotel. So now we have two storylines. We have a main storyline, Chegwin is trying to save the hotel, but now there's something else to think about. Somebody has been stealing food from the kitchen. And so subplots create a richer narrative. And it, I think as readers, we love, sometimes we actually love subplots almost as much as the main plot because they can create a lot of intrigue. And I remember reading Harry Potter for the first time and just being swept up in all the different layers of subplots that were put in there. Generally, the bigger or thicker a book, generally the more subplots we'll begin to have. So something like um, something like the movie Titanic, what's the main plot there? The main plot there is a ship sinking, right? Yeah, that's right, yep. So, so what's the subplot in that story? So the subplot there would be we have um, a romance, probably that would be the major um, subplot. We have a romance between two people who are on that, you know, on that boat while it's sinking. Now, Tim, some stories take place over a, a really long time and others take place over a short time. How do, you, how do you manage the flow of time when you're playing with a plot? I mean, you don't want, you don't want certain... Com- I, I guess the example I'd think of is that song... Um, Friday by Rebecca Black, that breathtakingly terrible song that her, <laughs> her mum paid for, that is now one of the biggest, biggest, um, m- most hit 
uh, clips on YouTube. But she spends a long time telling us what she has for breakfast and how she gets to the bus stop. What's what's your what are your thoughts on how the time frame in a story works in relation to plot? Well, I think I think as a result of you saying that Friday is probably going to um, peak on YouTube again. It's going to oh, rise up the charts. Well, it'd be nice if they linked um, back to us, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah, Westwards might get a bit of a a bit of a peak on YouTube. Um, yeah, so that, really great question, and this is important for young writers to get their heads around because you can actually cause yourself harm especially in in an exam situation so the reality is for most young writers uh you'll be clocked at 40 minutes of writing time until you leave school and that's for test situations so if you're given 40 minutes to write an entire story and you want to write an epic story about some hobbits who are trying to take a ring to mount doom a story that takes months and months and has subplots there's no way you can tell that story in that time um so time frame can actually dictate the quality of your writing when you're going through school. And if you deliberately tell a story that, say, takes place over lunchtime, so now that's a very short time frame, what you are giving yourself is the chance to be descriptive, the chance to help a character become real um, and a chance to perhaps put some, you know, some dialogue in the story as well. So time frame, guys, is just so important. Don't write epic, epic, epic stories unless you're doing them for the love of it in your free time, which is a wonderful thing to do. Try and train yourself to focus in on characters um, and look at the smaller picture and that by reducing your time frame there, you're allowing yourself to expand as a writer. One of the things I like to talk about with short stories is this idea that sometimes you've got a long story that you tell over the course of your 3000 words or whatever. Uh, but sometimes it's just a slice of life where you kind of dip into that person's life and it's just a moment. And you, I think it's an acting, an acting term. They say that you should get in late and get out early on a scene. And I, I guess that's pretty good advice as well. That's really good advice. And I like that idea of a slice. And for, for most of the people listening who are going, you know, you're, you're writing stories that are two or three or four pages long. That's it. And the word count there is not, not even going to be a thousand words. And so you are looking to, to write a bit of a slice um, of a story. Um, and time frame is how you control that. You can't, you can't write three pages of a 10 year story. It just doesn't work that way. And if you do, it's going to, there's going to be a lot of paragraphs that start with, the next day, uh, <laughs> the following February, and suddenly we have a, a watery story. Watery. I like that. I like that. Watery. One more question before we wrap up. Uh, you've got a plot. You've laid it all out. You've got it all. You're, you're comfortable with where all the turning points are and the, the, the Act 1, Act 3, all that stuff. Does that mean you have to stick to it? Like, what happens if you get to a point and you go, actually, I've got a much better way for this to go? Does that? How do you handle that? Do you, do you have to go back to the drawing board and completely reconfigure your plan? How do you handle that? Because we all do this. We all get to the point and go, actually, that's a better idea because ideas develop as we play in the sandpit. So how, how do you how do you do that? Yeah, super question. And for, for the writers listening for the young writers listening um i always like to say to students i'm teaching run with your improved idea uh, and that analogy of the sandpit's a good one because you might start by making a one story castle in the sand but suddenly you realize hey actually this would be really cool if there was a window here or if it's your story you might go actually you know what i'm going to introduce this character here because now it adds a whole new element to the story i hadn't planned so if that happens 
you may have to revise what happens after that in your plan um, or you may not. It just really comes down to the actual scene that you're writing. Um, but be patient with it and, and constantly revise your plan because that's the only way you can stay on top of it. And so the, the trick to that one is, and I think this is what I try and do, is plan simply. So I plan the main beats of my story and I actually leave a little bit of room in there for things to change or things to develop. Um, but the key, and this is what I'll really stress here, the key is you must know what well, I think. You must know how the story is going to end when you're learning to write. Um, someone like I know you, James, you've, you've written over 30 books. You'd be an excellent pantser because you you can back your ability to get to a really great end. So when, when you say pantser, what are, what are we talking about then? Yeah, yeah, sorry. So pantser is you're writing with a bit of a concept or a bit of an idea, but you haven't mapped it out um, explicitly. Um, so that's the, obviously a very different approach to plotting where you do map it out explicitly. So you're flying, well, by, the seat, think, flying by the seat of your pants is where that term comes from. I yeah, think. exactly. Or even you could say improvising, you know, improvising a story. But I think for young writers, knowing where you're, knowing the end of a story lets you get there. And if the risk with pantsing or not planning is that you may never reach the end of your story. Um, and I think for high school students, um, we probably need to know where the story is going to end. Do you ever, have, have you ever done this thing where you've gone partway in and you've gone, oh, I want to explore this other idea. And as you're doing that, you introduce a new character and then you go, actually, this is a far more interesting story than the one I started with. And this character's story is more interesting. I might have to discard that. Have you ever had to do that? No, I haven't. I think mainly because of the, the way that I do plan. But what I have done is, um, introduced ideas that then I'll pull in later. So for, let me give you an example. Let's say chapter one, suddenly there's a new character who I hadn't planned that I think, oh, brilliant, this is a really great character. What I'll do is then find some room in chapter four or chapter seven to bring that character back in because they were really adding to the story. Um, yeah. Have you, have you done it? Uh, yeah, I have actually. Yeah, <laughs> I've had to discard an entire character and gone. And that becomes a structural question. Then you go, well, you know, the questions that you ask when you're playing with structure of who's telling the story, yeah. when are they telling the story, how are they telling the story, uh, and is their story actually the most interesting part of subplot within this story as well? Um, yeah, that's right. You know, for the high school writers, it comes down to the purpose of your piece of work. Um, is, it, is it a... Uh, a passion project. If it is, you can afford to really make as many changes as you want. The other extreme is an exam situation where you're given five minutes to plan and then 40 minutes to execute. That's where those five minutes really, you really need to get the beats of your story and try and have a strong idea of where you're going to end um, because you just won't have time to make huge changes. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Tim, if that's okay. Is that, can I do that? Yeah, sure. I want you to imagine that you're in a, you've got a 40 minute writing exam uh, and the stimulus you've been given is this. It's a, it's a, uh, a line from a song by Bob Dylan. And the line is yep. they're selling postcards of the hanging. Use this to describe an event taking place in an alternate universe. Okay. So the first thing I'll do is read that quote and just get a bit of a feel for it. And it takes five, Five to ten seconds. So I'll say it again for our listeners. Um, they're selling postcards of the hanging. Now, our stimulus says that's a different universe. So straight away I wanted to go back into 
probably the 1800s yeah. and maybe like Wild a West, bush yeah. ranger situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So I suppose, you know, that could be an, an alternative universe, um, you know, going back in time. But I think a lot of people are going to be doing it. So what I try and do as a writer is immediately think of the perspectives, the possible perspectives of this story and where it could be. And I'll tell you what I mean. Most young writers are going to be focusing on the hanging because that's a really, that's a very, it's a horrible way it's to dramatic. die. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's really dramatic and it's, and it's naturally going to draw people in. But what I would like to do to get a fresh idea, because at the end of the day, if you do an exam, you want your writing to stand out. So I would look at the word postcards and I would think, well, is there a story about the person who's actually selling the postcards? Um, as opposed to the hanging itself. So perhaps my story could be about the person who's selling postcards um, has run out of postcards and suddenly we have this whole new take on the quote um, instead. Or it could be about someone who buys one of the postcards um, but is not interested at all in the hanging. And so by being drawn into the main, the easy way is to write about the hanging, but by looking for different perspectives, suddenly you might have a really fresh idea or something that's going to stand out. Um, and then when it comes to the you know alternate universe part, I think that's probably the hardest part of the stimulus and you your job would be to... Uh, to help the reader with the setting. In fact, you might need to listen to our setting podcast uh, to get some ideas <laughs> no, for this one. Maybe. Uh, yeah, but uh, just to summarise that, because I know I, I sort of spoke for a little little while, but the, the trick is try and find a unique perspective with the stimulus before you start plotting. And so for this one, I was thinking about the postcards or I was thinking about the people buying the postcards instead of just the hanging. I guess the other thing is a bit of a sidebar on that and a good advice for um, our listeners is in an exam setting, just because they put up a picture of a lighthouse doesn't mean you have to write about a lighthouse. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think that lighthouse one is a really great example of um, how you can use a stimulus as a metaphor as well. You know, the lighthouse could represent somebody who's acting as a, as a beacon of hope for somebody else. Um, and I would always encourage young writers to look for those chances to think think beneath just the image. I guess the other example I often give people is if you uh, if you see a, a picture of a gate, if, if they give you a picture of the gate as a stimulus, it's not necessarily a story about a gate, it's more about people being locked out or people being locked in or or yeah. approaches into a different world or whatever. Before we go, Tim, your website so that people can find you in the uh, online world. My website is www.timharrisbooks.com uh, and my Facebook and Instagram pages are at Tim Harris Books. Beautiful. Okay, thanks, man. We'll talk later. Thanks, James. See ya.